0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Turf Dudes. My name is Jeff Atkinson. We are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they are seeing out there, new discoveries, and the science behind today's turf management strategies. This podcast was created for you, the turfgrass manager, with a curiosity into the science behind turfgrass management. If you have a topic suggestion, know of innovative work we should feature, or simply have a question you'd like for us to address, please reach out to us at turfdudes heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at Harrells.com. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Sean Askew, turfgrass weed scientist at Virginia Tech. I'm also joined by Dr. Raymond Snyder and Jason Frank of Harrells. Dr. Askew's research focuses on development and evaluation of new herbicides, development and evaluation of organic and cultural weed control programs, new diagnostic and application technology, and environmental effects of weed management in turfgrass. Dr. Askew also manages a phytochemistry and radioactive materials laboratory, where his team conducts research on herbicide physiology and herbicide-resistant weeds. Enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Askew, thank you for joining us today. Uh, We appreciate your time and uh, appreciate the insight that you could be able to give us. But I kind of start us off, um, I guess, what was it, early 2010, so 2012, 14, somewhere on that ballpark area. I think I remember you doing a lot of work with Uh, winter and spring proxy programs and maybe you still continue that work today and had a few years to look at these programs actually in the field and as we're kind of coming out of coming out of winter and into spring what are some takeaways and what are some i guess applications for these uh maybe earlier proxy applications uh, that you've seen over the last few years
1: right well it's uh so that program has been extremely successful. Now, how you measure success, now that's a different question. You know, in our, our university research, we went from kind of a typical 40 to 60% seed suppression with a spring program of proxy using growing degree days to trigger the spring program. Uh, when we started using the early application, uh, which would be a fall or winter application. Uh typically what I recommend is between uh, November fifteenth and February fifteenth. And pretty much wide window. Anytime during that window, if you put an early application on in, in university trials, we were bumping up seeded suppression to ninety-five percent or better. But what we've seen in on golf course scenarios, we almost always get an increase. Oh, uh, in fact, I don't know of a situation where Seedless uh, suppression did not increase when an early application was added, but they're not seeing the 95, 97 percent. They're going from 40 to 50 percent suppression to say 70 percent suppression, sometimes better. Um, and I honestly think, and this is something that no one's—it's a different topic, and no one has really done any research that I'm aware of—but it's the direction that I am aiming right now. I think we have some level of resistance uh, on course you know, on on these courses that now have been using seed ed suppressors for more than a decade, um, I think that the plants that continue to survive, you know, they're the ones that aren't producing uh, or that that are able to produce seed um, in lieu of a proxy application. And so it seems logical that we, we would be selecting for plants that are a little more tolerant of uh, ethyphon and so and that can, in can in the mechanism of action for that product it's not fully known but but there seemingly would be a number of different ways that a plant could develop uh, some level of resistance uh, because um, ethyphon causes ethylene escalation in the plant and that's going to act as a hormone and it's going to along with other environmental cues kind of regulate the um differentiation process basically when when the growing point decides if it's going to make a leaf or a seed head uh when you have ethylated uh, ethylene concentration in pole annua that's kind of helping to send a signal to say hey why don't you just produce a leaf Uh, let's not produce a seed head right now that's why the early app tended to work really well because i think in a lot of winters the reason we were seeing so so much inconsistency in uh, um, seed suppression with ethylpond with just spring programs is some years you have several warm days during the winter, and a lot of plants will make that differentiation decision. And so the fact that you come in in the spring and and bombard the plant with ethylene and say, hey, don't make a seed dead, don't make a seed dead. Well, there's a certain percentage of seededs that were already decided upon by the plant, if I can personify it. And uh, by backing up into the winter or fall, you can get those seed heads as well and you get better seed head suppression. But when you think about resistance development, and there's not much we can do about it because we're, you know, with the loss of Embark, we're down to one primary product for polla seed head suppression. But uh, I do believe that um, that a lot of the plants are, you know, less responsive to ethylene escalation because of our repeated use of the product over time. But anyway, That's... that program has worked, and it's. Uh, I find that the performance is not so much rate-driven as it is frequency of application, So you can do better with more apps at low rates than you can with fewer apps at high rates. We're still recommending the Growing Degree Date Spring program, but I'm starting to question whether it's even necessary to be, you know, count-and-growing degree days if you're using an early app because uh, it does improve the performance considerably. But what I've been recommending is the easy approach is one proxy or or other ethylphon product applied between November 15th, February 15th, five ounce uh, per thousand, single app. And if you're in a more northern environment and your greens are going to go completely dormant, it should really just be proxy only for that early app, for the, for the fall winter app. If you're in a southern environment, you might consider using a pigment product, uh, maybe even a crop protection product to to help improve green color. Uh, because when we put fall or winter apps out, we tend to accentuate brown out from frost. And that's going to affect people in the southern locations that are trying to keep their green color for winter play more than it will, for example, me here in Blacksburg, Virginia. Um, So that's the early app. If you're coming out in the spring, we pretty much always, and I also recommend that Proxy or Ethophon products go out with Trinexpac Ethyl or Primo. And so the spring program is Proxy Primo. The fall is Proxy only unless you need to extend green color. So it can be uh, multiple apps at two and a half hours. Go ahead
0: i would say be really interesting to watch that the theory on resistance develop because that seems like that'd be a different mechanism altogether from some of our other resistance mechanisms that we're working through today. So that, that's really fascinating. But A couple of things to follow up on there, the November 15th to February 15th, that's a good window for Blacksburg. Does that window also apply to up and down the eastern seaboard out west or how should that be viewed in different locations?
1: Right. So there there are some locations where all of this gets thrown out the window. Okay. You, you can go to um, areas in California where their seed head season pretty much doesn't end uh, for the year. And they're putting out uh Epiphone products in August and still battling seed heads in August, you know, and that's alien to me. Um, but for for the mid Atlantic region, the uh, the November to February is a pretty good bet. If you're Atlanta, Georgia, or further south, well, first of all, you're probably not dealing with seed suppression as much of a, you know, concept as you are perhaps looking at more poa annual control. Uh, Hopefully your population levels are going to be low enough uh, that you you don't have to necessarily worry about uh, seed ed suppression. You can kind of get aggressive with other PGRs that harm the poa, and kind of deal with low-level populations that seed heads don't become as prevalent. But if you are dealing with uh, seed heads uh, Atlanta and further south and using seed head suppressors, then I would argue that you would push that window a little bit forward for the early app. And so, you know, you may be looking at more like December. um, And also, your window is going to be more compressed. So, you'd be looking at more like December 15th to, say, First of February. Uh, but for most of the area where seed head suppression is more uh, required or necessary, yeah, the uh, November to uh, February is a pretty good bet.
2: Doctor, this is Raymond here. Um, I'm a little bit of a novice with the whole seed head suppression topic, but w- when does one begin to include the PRIMO component?
1: Proxy or Epiphon, does not necessarily enhance color and quality. Uh, when you're applying it, though, there's a lot of uh, research data out there that says it's actually quite detrimental to color and quality, but most of that work was done like mid-summer. A lot of it was done, was done in a Georgia summer. Uh, Dr. McCullough's got a lot of work that, that was done on that. It's great work, but, but the work kind of suggests that ethyphon is more deleterious to turf quality than it really is. Uh so ethons should not be applied during warm weather, temperatures uh getting above eighty-five degrees. Under those conditions, you get crown rising and you also get loss of color and, and uh, the stemmy appearance to turf that's undesirable. So we can't control the weather right in spring when we're normally going after poa seed heads. So what we do is we put primo in the tank in the spring. And that tends to help reduce the crown rising, reduce the stemmy elongation, and also help with color. Uh, it improves the overall um, quality of the turf. And so when we're going out with spring applications, which are normally the, the first spring application is, is triggered by growing degree days on putting green. That's going to be um, about 350 to 400 growing degree days at a base 32 degrees Fahrenheit uh and if you're going after fairway height or athletic height turf you would be looking at closer to 200 to 250 growing degree days at a base 32f a When to start counting is a big point of contention because the further we go south the warmer the weather gets and you kind of get into scenario like most people further south will start counting their growing degree days on january 1st whereas You know, if if I'm counting growing degree days and I get a warm week in January, I really, in in Blacksburg or in areas further up in the mid-Atlantic, I don't want to add those uh, heat units to my growing tally because we are going to get cold enough after mid-January, for example, to reset the system. So normally I start counting 1st of February or anytime between 1st to 15th of February, I'm going to start tallying my heat units. And, um, again, it's a base, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the initial spring trigger is uh, 200 to 250 for fairways and uh, about approximately 400 for greens. And, and that application, that spring application, gets Primo. The fall application, take it or leave it. Personally, I, I think Primo, adding Primo increases the brownout that you get that's associated with frost. So you get a lot of tip burn from frost with when you have a pgr present it just enhances that and um so there's really no quality enhancement from primo during the early app unless you're growing turf and there are you know there are places in the southern u.s where you're still growing uh your greens at that time of year so sure primo would be uh fine in that case we normally as you get further and further north and you still want to extend color, I would I would rather grab a colorant um, rather than Primo uh, for the fall-winter app. But for spring, Primo is the way to go. And nothing wrong with using colorants as well. I think people are putting them in almost every tank these days on greens.
2: So, Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Jason, you'll change gears for us.
3: Yep. So uh, my question is on post control options for goosegrass, which obviously can be a very challenging uh, weed in a number of states in the U.S. Um, obviously in Florida, um, it's a weed that you know we can see every month of the year, depending on what region you're in in Florida. So everybody kind of has their own post goosegrass control concoction, if you will. You know, recently we've seen some promise from things like Pilex, and I know you've done some work on safeening, you know, bleaching in that product. Uh, Syngenta has the Triple Threat program and we still see a lot of people utilizing things like revolver tribute, you know, as a base for a lot of these concoctions. Yep. Uh, can you comment on, you know, what are you seeing as the best products combinations that people should be looking at to kind of to gain the most success for um, this topic right. at this point? You know, what, what are you seeing? And is there anything else better out there that we should be looking at?
1: Okay. So you said everyone has their own concoction. It's because there's so many different scenarios that we're dealing with. And also, there's huge, I cannot stress this enough. If, any, if, if people walk away from this discussion with one thing, just remember when it comes to goosegrass control in Bermuda, there are huge regional differences in how both Bermuda and goosegrass will respond to these programs, in particular in how Bermudagrass will respond to these programs. And so, um, as you move further north, the Bermuda grass gets less and less growing season and the quality of the growing season also goes to crap Uh, you know in Virginia we get a fraction of the heat units that you got the uh, um, heat units of uh, base 65 degrees Fahrenheit and above good growing weather for Bermuda grass Uh, we probably get uh, less than one-fifth of what you guys in Florida will get and and also you get uh, a much longer growing season as well so thus harvesting a lot more light uh, than we can and so that leaves us with this wimpy bermuda grass that just cannot sustain aggressive treatments for goosegrass, and that's why we've done so much work uh, recently on uh, pilex and syncor like for example the the um, syngenta Triple threat program that you mentioned with mesotrion and simazine and what's the other product? Is it um, was it metribuzin or was it um, metolapor? Or I can't remember the third component. But anyway, mizotrion does not have the same selectivity differential that topramazone does, and we have not been able to find a way to drive the mesotrion rate low enough that we don't injure our Bermuda. Uh, we can get severe injury from that program in Virginia that uh, would be three-day discoloration in Florida. know, we get sand loss. You guys get three-day discoloration. And we've done regional studies with colleagues in Mississippi State and other places, and that's exactly what we see. They We put out the trials under the same, you know, accumulative heat unit, and then we look at the Bermuda response, and we're losing turf and and they you know didn't even get below acceptable you know uh in, in some instances so it's a mild discoloration versus death for us and so there's huge regional differences in how the bermuda will respond what we have uh developed for and and, and again I, I keep talking about bermuda injury and you mentioned tribute total and revolver so You can go tribute total and revolver and get, well, I won't say absolute, but near absolute safety to your Bermuda. So at least you're going to be spending U.S. dollar bucks, but you won't be necessarily spending injury bucks. And that's kind of the way I look at it. I'm trying to balance the amount of actual money I'm spending, and I'm also trying to balance the amount of injury dollars, if you will, or injury risk that I'm spending. The cool thing about tribute total and and Revolver is you're not you're not spending injury risk per se. Uh, so that's great for high wear athletics. It's, it's great for uh, any situation where injury can't be sustained. And I tell you, it's awesome for the transition zone where we had this sucky uh, summer season, and we can't lose two weeks of our summer season due to injury. So we run into that. But the problem with those programs is they don't really address or effectively address large goose grass. So you're dealing with uh, preferably pre-tiller seedling stage plants. That's the scenario that I can guarantee you, you're going to get effective kill of all the population. You start getting up to about the three tiller stage and I'll, you know, I'll typically guarantee you that you're going to kill about half the plants and you're going to shut the other half down for five weeks. Or more and on really large plants you're going to shut them down for the better part of a month before they shake it off and start recovering. but almost all of those larger plants, anything greater than three tiller, they're going to recover from a high rate revolver or a tribute total uh, treatment. Uh, you kill the young plants but the bigger ones shake it off eventually. but I still say if, if, if you're not, if you're not causing injury to your Bermuda, but yet you're stopping the goosegrass from growing. From expanding and you're killing over half of it, that's a pretty darn good thing. Uh, and so for many people, especially highware athletics, uh, it's worth it. You know, it is definitely worth the money. And that's I would say that's the core of our programs in uh in athletics in Virginia would be something that's revolver based, whether it's tribute total revolver, something like that, because it's so safe. But when you start looking at treatments to control goosegrass plants that you can see from a standing position or from the truck window, uh, and, and it does not take long to get yourself into that scenario. I mean, you can come out and uh, inspect a site and hardly see goosegrass in one week, and literally, if it's a good hot week, one week later, you can be in a scenario where you're getting beyond the treatment window for effective keel from a product like Revolver Tribute Total. So then what do you do? But what we're doing to try to manage uh, risk to our Bermuda is a program of 0.25 ounces of Pilex and 4 ounces of Syncor. And what that has done for us, and, and we did many, many iterations to get to that uh, mixture, but what it does for us is um, it reduces the Pilex rate low enough that our, our injury that we get is going to be about half of what Pilex at a half ounce Alone would give us. And our recovery time is uh, about a third of, you know, so the duration that we're dealing with unacceptable injury is one third of the amount of time that it would have been from Pilex at a half ounce by itself. And we're actually doing better than MSMA Syncor. Um, the, the onset of injury, I'm not saying we don't get severe injury from this program, but it will kill behemoth goosegrass and our our injury pattern ranges from no noticeable injury on, in the most extreme safe case, and that's unusual, to about 60% discoloration of the turf. And so it can be severe. You know, 60% discoloration is totally unacceptable. You're going to notice that. But the beauty of it is is it lasts about five days at most, and we're back in business, usually less than that. And so as a balance, it's very affordable program and it and it works to kill the goosegrass and um, our our hit on the growing season is the least amount of time that we can handle and we just don't have other options to get big goosegrass As you go further south in the country, you can get more aggressive. you know your pilex rates can go from a quarter ounce up to you know, if you're dealing, doing it with Sincor, say at four ounces, you can go on up to um, a half ounce with four ounce Sincor. Uh, or you can go Pilex by itself at all the way up to three quarter ounce, which we, we can't do in Virginia. But that's on the label. Um, you can do that in the deep south. Another thing that people are doing is uh, have been looking at irrigation programs, post-treatment irrigation, to safeen things like um, Sincor or Pilex. Our work that we've done in the last two years is suggesting that uh, at least for pilots and pilot syncor combinations, uh, rapid post-treatment irrigation absolutely safens the Bermuda, but it also substantially reduces the goosegrass control. Now, whether that's true for Syncor, I have been told it is not, and that's kind of what we're – we can't – like, I, I know, you know, the max label rate of Syncor is 0. 0.66 pounds. And I know a lot of people are going well beyond that. They're going up to a pound of Sincor and then irrigating immediately afterwards. And I'm told they're getting really good results in the deep south. Uh, and that's cool. I, I'm glad people can do that. We, we can't. We, we can't go that high with Sincor. Or we will lose Bermuda grass in Virginia. And so that's kind of been our, our challenge. And a lot of our research is catered to our really weak Bermuda. And it may not really apply as well to what's happening in Florida.
2: Example and doctor, this is Raymond. No, thank you. Can, can sulfentrazone play a role in helping to can, uh, control goosegrass in Bermuda grass?
1: All right, so it can, but sulfentrazone again, it's living down there in that domain of seedling plants, uh, just like revolver. Uh, if you want to kill goosegrass with suffinchazone, it's going to be really, really young plants. So you start putting uh, suffinchazone as a tank mixture on the more mature plants. It helps a little bit. You put suffinchazone by itself, you get a little bit of tip burn, and that's it. The, ber- the goosegrass will shake it off very rapidly. So where you're, you know, where suffinchazone is going to be useful is going to be. You know, high wear athletics, grow ends. I need to get the sedge that's coming in to where I sprigged, and I would like to address goosegrass. Well, obviously, I would choose a sulfentrazone product for that, rather than uh, just going with a halosulfuron for that sedge. Uh, so, or or something like revolver plus sulfentrazone. is going to be a very broad spectrum uh, program. Uh, we we do have to juggle a little bit of injury risk from sulphentrazone. Uh, but for sprig Bermuda, it, it's not an issue. Uh, and so that would be a good time to use it is when the goosegrass is young and when, um, when you're dealing with um, high wear situations. The problem is, if you go after goosegrass at those young stages, you know, pre tiller to early tiller stages, goosegrass can, the population can re sprout from seed and rebound to a tillering plant so rapidly that it becomes economically challenging to stay on that bandwagon. I mean, you would literally be spraying these high dollar products, 90 to 100 or well, I'll say 90 to 200 dollars an acre products every 3 weeks to stay on top of uh the goosegrass. Hopefully, in the meantime though, you're you're pushing your turf with fertilizer and you're you're getting your stand back. If you can get high stand density, your goosegrass problems are going to go away. Just go on any driving range that has severe goosegrass issues. You'll see these islands of solid Bermuda grass. Anywhere the Bermuda is dense, the goosegrass goes away. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, Goosegrass depends on rapid drying and uh, both both warming and cooling and um, wet-dry cycling uh, to stimulate germination. And, And that's exactly what it gets from bare ground scenarios. People say goosegrass loves compacted sites. Well, I don't know about Love's compacted sites. The plants grow better in non-compacted soil, but a lot of their biology is favored by the conditions that you find in compacted sites. It tends to stimulate their germination and emergence, and it prevents early-stage competition from other plants in the area because they're not there. The goosegrass does really well in those scenarios. And, man, can it grow fast.
2: And it it really can get some deep roots as well. I Wish some of our Bermuda had the root system that some of the goosegrass plants have.
1: Yeah, and it it can um, it can be really difficult to control the more mature plants, and that's where most of our research has centered. Is uh, and that's why we have done things as crazy as grabbing the one of the market leading Bermuda grass control products into Premazone Pilex, and saying, hey. Let's see if we can use this to kill goosegrass in Bermuda. You know how stupid does that sound? You know at the outset, uh, but but supremazone just happens to be super powerful on goosegrass for some reason, and we've been able to dial the rate down enough and throw in some syncor to kind of. We also we we've had some pretty good uh, results with our results with chelated iron to to uh, mask or safe in the injury has been uh, really inconsistent. We tend to get more rapid recovery when we use chelated iron. I know Scott McElroy at Auburn has done some, some work where they got a lot better results with chelated iron. We recently, uh, I tweeted a, a post about some stuff that we did last summer using zinc sulfate, and it looked amazing uh, at uh, preventing you know discoloration of Bermuda with tapramazone programs. We also did some work late last summer that we're going to repeat if it'll ever get hot here uh, this summer using um, both Celsius and Tribute Total. And for some reason that I can't yet explain, they seem to be safening our Bermuda to our pilot Sincor programs. Now that's adding a lot of cost to the program, but if I could say, hey, normally you range from no injury to 70%. If I can turn that into no injury to 15%, and you know there are no guarantees, but damn near guarantee it, um, for some people they'd be worth an extra 150 to 180 dollars an acre.
2: Do you have an extension publication or a resource for our listeners that uh points to the work you did related to your 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 pilot's work in uh goosegrass control and Bermuda grass?
1: You know, surprisingly no. Um so I have a uh, I have a crop science journal article and um, but on that particular topic, considering the amount of work that we have done, I mean numerous abstracts at the Weed Science meetings and that sort of thing. But um wow, yeah, I need to I need to put out um maybe a magazine article or, or some, some type of extension pub on that topic. Um because no, I c- I can't point you to one on the um uh, we may have a—I bet we do have a couple of articles in the Virginia Turfgrass Journal, but that's not going to be widely available to your listeners. Um, I do have a a article that you should be able to find online uh, regarding the the Polania seeded dead suppression, um, as well as a um, journal publication and weed, weed technology. Yeah, that's a good one for me to work on because there's a lot to talk about you know as we went through the different scenarios where do you choose a safe product or do you choose a product that's affected for more for the more mature goosegrass and we didn't even talk about speed zone speed zone and goosegrass control has been a hot topic recently and uh, you know really to get speed on work effectively you kind of have to go off label a little bit because the application frequency at the high rate that's needed the label requires a four-week interval and you just can't get the job done if you're not doing it at two-week intervals. Um, but at two-week intervals, it, it's, it's pretty effective. Uh, what we're looking at now is trying to combine zone with some of these other products to see what we can't get, you know, in terms of a, a mixture to, to get us back in line with the label.
2: Well, if you're looking for a venue to, to uh, launch that, that, um, user and user publication. You, you're always welcome to use our, our Herald's, our, our blog on our website as uh, <laughs> a mechanism for that. So. All
0: right. Sounds good. Hey, you mentioned, uh, Bermuda grass control when you're in the same breath as pile in that discussion as well. And, you know, there's a lot of, well, before the market did the things that did over the last few months, uh, there was a lot of interest in renovations. Uh, any, best management practices for Bermuda grass control and bent grass
1: okay so this is a uh all right so we we have done quite a bit of work on selective you know control and vent yep. and i can make certainly a, several comments on because right now the hot topic on renovation is uh how do i renovate without glyphosate and we could we could spend this entire podcast uh <laughs> talking about about that um but from the standpoint of selective Bermuda control and bent, what we have seen quite a bit of success in here recently is we've kind of invented and built a prototype turf slicer. And what we've been doing is slicing bent grass fairways in the winter, in late fall through winter. We also slice in conjunction with our herbicide applications to uh, help uh, get product into. Uh, the Bermuda Stolens. And uh, so we, we've we been coming out with, so let me just back up. Bermuda control in general, if you want to kill unwanted Bermuda grass, wire grass, however you want to call it, you're going to need fall applications of the herbicide of choice. So that's when killing happens. Actually, that's, that's actually not when killing happens. That is predisposing the Bermuda grass to being killed by winter conditions. All right, so what you're doing is you're setting up, it's almost like I I, I use this analogy. You know, a squirrel is frantically trying to go around and gather up nuts for the winter, right? Well, using herbicides in a repeated application program in late fall, leading up to the first severe frost, what that is doing for your turf would be equivalent to catching that squirrel, shaving all of his hair off, and then stealing all of his uh, stored food that he had, had put up for the winter. Uh, he, he's going to have a hard time. And that's kind of how, you know, what we're doing with Bermuda. We, we usually would do a three-application program at three-week intervals. The products of choice – now, I'm I'm going to get to Bent. I'm going to get back to Bent in a moment. But I'm talking about general cool season like Tall Fescue, Kentucky Blue, you name it. The products of choice, the, the core of those mixtures are going to be either Acclaim, Hylex, or Tenacity. Those would be the three primary products. In almost all cases, uh, except bent grass, I would recommend triclopyr. For tall fescue or high, like perennial rye situations, that would be a quart. For um, for fine fescue or Kentucky bluegrass, it would be a pint. So we've got, for example, Pilot plus uh, Turflon. And that's gonna go out three times at three week intervals with the last application being within one to two weeks of severe frost situation. Now that would be a general statement for cool season rough. But if we move to bent grass, well, suddenly our herbicide rates—you know, a claim is out. Uh, you just can't use enough a claim to really be doing anything to the Bermuda grass in that scenario tenacity's out uh tenacity's going to kill bent more effectively than it'll kill bermuda so we're left really with pilex in in that instance we also have two percent but it's really costly to try to move to like a fairway uh situation and do this maybe on greens but um you know when you start tallying 30 acres of fairways at 400 dollars per acre per application and multiple applications to get the job done um you know the numbers aren't working real well but so what we've been doing is pilot at uh 0.25 0.15 to 0.25 ounces per acre and we add for bent grass you can actually add a very very small amount of turf lawn and it's not for Bermuda control it's to actually eliminate the white discoloration on bent grass fairways and what we do is uh we're doing a quarter of an ounce of pilex with three quarters of an ounce of terp ester, or an equivalent ester formulation of triclopyr, and so it's a that's a total one ounce per acre. And these are per acre now; these are per acre rates. They're really low, but they're per acre rates. All right, so it's only a quarter ounce of pilot. You're talking six bucks or whatever, and a uh, three quarters of an ounce of turf line ester, which normally would go out at, you know, it can go out to as much as thirty two ounces to the acre. But we're only putting three quarters of an ounce. And the reason we're doing that is it, it, it eliminates white discoloration on the bent. Uh, and so that's our go-to Bermuda control program in bent. And we have been adding slicing events in the winter to further improve the winter keel of the Bermuda. And it's been working pretty well. We've got several long-term studies on golf courses right now that are looking awesome. I, I tweeted one out—a picture of uh, an aerial view of some of our large plots—and uh, probably a month ago or so. It's pretty impressive.
0: So that slicing event just serves to further strip the fur off the squirrel, if you will, to make it that much weaker going That's into right.
1: winter. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we're going back, and you know, even though we've already uh, we shaved him <laughs> all of mood, we come back and basically just stab him with a with a small knife. You know?
3: <laughs>
0: I'm gonna have to save that one is away for later.
1: Wounds in that Bermuda that it can't heal. So you make all these wounds in the stolens at a time of year when it can't heal those wounds, and you're just opening up the window for different uh, pathogens to come in, and uh, not to mention desiccation that's gonna happen from the the winter stress. Um, and so your your overall winter kill mm-hmm. is gonna be enhanced if you can slice the Bermuda. You know the bent doesn't necessarily like it, but it it's not a big deal for the bent. The bent can tolerate that.
2: Yeah, I can recover. All right, Randy, you want to change gears for us? Yeah, I just so it's part of my role, I get to leave Florida on occasion, and I'll end up in the transition zone, and I'll often uh, get questions related to pre and post goose and crabgrass control and bentgrass greens. And I was wondering if you could shed a little light on on our. Options for uh, pre and post goose and crab on in bent grass greens, something that would okay. be the, the the most effective for the those situations. Right,
1: you know, I, I when I talk about uh, crab and goose on vent, I I, I often get um, some superintendents, usually less experienced superintendents, that get real smug and they act like uh, really crab and goose on a green, you know. Who has that problem? But, you know, if you've been around the block long enough and you, you've you run into a situation, whether you inherited that situation, uh, taking over a new course, or whether some catastrophe has happened to you that has taken away your turf density, it will leave you midsummer with atrocious crab and goose problems. And uh, when you go down that road, uh, you'll know how rocky it is. Uh, but but a lot of our folks in the transition zone deal with these problems more routinely because the type of turf we're growing is not adapted to our environment, no matter what it is. Dr. Goatley, our turf agronomist at Virginia Tech, always says in the transition zone, we can grow every known type of turf grass in the world poorly. And uh, that that's our problem. So we always have too hot, too cold, you name it. And so we end up struggling to, to, to maintain the turf density that will keep crab and goose out. And then, of course, putting green, by nature, they're going to be uh, very sensitive to herbicides. As a general statement, I mean, herbicide applications on greens are to be avoided if they can be avoided. So uh, what do you do? Uh, we, we've done, you know, a lot of research, you know, and if if, uh, if Benzalide or Benzimec worked, we wouldn't have problems, but either the crab and goose have developed resistance or the Benzalide is just not holding long enough into the season for us to to prevent that. Uh, We do have a few products still out there. There's some Anderson's products that can utilize Dithiopyr. And again, for non-resistant biotypes, it's going to effectively address them, but when you start using dithyrope, you pick up injury risk uh, that wouldn't necessarily have been associated with the low rate, infrequent applications that we're doing with Bensomec. And then we also have oxidizon based programs that can be used on green. And they're the highest potential injury, but also highest potential suppression of goosegrass, for example. Uh, but I tell you, you know, when you're using something like a, a Anderson's Crab and Goose granular product, it is super important to uh, to give that product the respect that it deserves. In terms of uh, you know, you should at least be biting nails on injury potential, especially on a bent grass green, but even on Bermuda greens. And the the typical approach is we're going to calibrate that granular spreader for one fourth of the recommended rate, and we're going to hit that green in four different directions, trying to prevent overlap and and things that can cause injury but we have uh, you know there's the potential for poor performance from any of those pre-emerged products uh, especially as we dial back rates and pre- and the frequency of applications because we're scared to death of, of injury risk so you know and if you have poor turf density for whatever reason you're going to get crab and goose and it's going to start coming in at a frequency that you can no longer pick with a pocket knife and and you just start losing that struggle. So what do you do? So We've been doing some research recently on that. And we, we feel like we have found a diamond in the rough uh, in 2%. And so a lot of superintendents up and down the mid-Atlantic and in areas further south have for quite some time been using a claim illegally on green uh, to address crabgrass and goosegrass. So the fairway rate of a claim is three and a half ounces. On greens, people are using three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half ounces every seven to ten days. And if you get on that bandwagon early and stay on it, you can keep crabbing goose out, no doubt. But what you're doing is you're spoon-feeding uh, an oxaprop onto the green. And if you see any bronzing or if your clipping production is not quite where you think it should be, uh, you're going to delay the next application or you're going to back off on the rate a little bit. You might go down to a two-ounce or three-ounce. Uh, you may you may back off your PGR program a little bit. And so you're going to read the green and do what the green is telling you it needs. Um, so a, bit, a couple of words of caution about that frequent app, acclaim program. Number one, it, it is illegal. I've already mentioned that uh, because the claim is not registered for use on green. Number two, a claim is not having any impact whatsoever. I mean, it would be essentially equivalent to water on pole annua. And yet, those rates of acclaim are stunting and slowing the growth of your bent grass. So by using an acclaim program to target crab and goose, you are promoting poa populations. Now, if you live in a more southern environment where, you know, polar really doesn't have the growing environment that it wants, well, great. You know, you, you could probably get away with that in Virginia. Well, turf agronomy and PGR use, pack of salt, et cetera. You know, you're doing all of these things to keep the pole at bay, but at the same time possibly address uh, crab and goose using a claim. I don't recommend it because I think it's too injurious to the bench. What we have discovered, the diamond in the rough, is super percent. And we've done a lot of work to kind of characterize how to use it. And one of the things that we had to manage was cost because 2% is, it it can be extremely costly to put out uh, frequent applications of 2% throughout the season. But I think we've got that dialed in as well. So what we've done is um, we can control crab grass at 2% rate of six pounds product per acre applied every two weeks starting when uh, crabgrass first starts to emerge on the green and ending when you know crabgrass is no no longer has adequate growing season for us in uh, Blacksburg that start date is going to be somewhere around June 1 and the end date for us is somewhere around September 1 Um. And so, obviously, the season's going to be considerably longer in in other places. So, that would be six pounds every two weeks. And we get absolutely no even risk at that rate of 2%, not even the risk of injury to the green. And that's the beauty of it. It's absolutely safe. And at six pounds, again, notice that I'm only talking about crabgrass right now. I haven't started talking about goose yet. But at six pounds, the cost is at or slightly below a typical PGR program for the year. You're going to be at three grand or less uh, for that type of program, or maybe a little over three grand, depending on how many apps you have to do and how long your season is. But unfortunately, to get goosegrass with 2%, we have to go up to closer to 18 pounds, three times that much. In terms of injury risk, Even at 18 pounds, we're not really risking anything. The places where people have seen 2% injury on greens, they're dealing north of 24 pounds, oftentimes up around a pound per thousand, you know, 40-plus pounds of uh, 2% per acre. At uh, 24 pounds and below, we have not seen injury to multiple varieties of bent grass in our research when that rate is applied every two weeks for the season. Now, a Blacksburg summer is not an Atlanta, Georgia summer. All right. And so there are many places in the world where it's a badge of honor just to keep bent grass alive for the summer. All right. If you're dealing with that kind of scenario, 2% is not going to help you keep Bermuda grass alive other than keeping the weeds out. All right. So uh, whatever stress that it may be causing to the bent is not measurable in blacksburg although we did have one growth chamber study where we picked up a little bit of clipping reduction but other than that it's not really measurable in blacksburg but it could be in your area so i will warn that that you know if you're dealing with turf loss due to stress probably any rate of any herbicide is going to accentuate that loss and increase that loss um the the Problem scenarios I've seen with uh, 2% causing turf loss was just that, under extreme stressful environments in the deep south. uh, And you can even see patterns where fans were used on the green. They didn't have the problem, where they didn't have fans. You know, they had turf loss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So using any herbicide is going to accentuate turf loss, so I'll warn that. But but that's our rate, 6 pounds for crabgrass, 18 pounds for crabgrass and goosegrass. Applied every two weeks when the season starts till the season ends, and from a turf safety standpoint, only when you're getting into mother nature induced potential turf loss would you see probably a problem from from that program. It's extremely safe as herbicides go. Are,
2: are you including any surfactants with the two percent or just by itself?
1: We have tested that, and no, we do not include surfactants because we have not seen them change anything. In fact, uh, you can go ahead and water the product in immediately if you want. I mean, it, uh, at some of the higher rates, it's kind of like chlorothalonil, paint it white and sleep at night. Because um, 2% will, I mean, it's, it's enough powder that's actually visible on the turf, and you might want to wash that off just from an aesthetic standpoint. Uh, so, no, we haven't done anything to um, – we haven't seen a need to promote foliar absorption. And another quick comment that I'll make, this program will control goosegrass post-emerge as well. And last summer, we actually had a scenario where we had a, well, it was Dr. Zhang. Dr. Zhang had a research project, and crabgrass took over his green. And he called me and said, is there anything you can do? I need to, I need to at least stop the crabgrass from growing and expanding, but I cannot harm my bent. So, we went out with 24 pounds of 2%, two applications at a two week interval, late season. This was in August on his putting green. We took out half of that crabgrass, and we're talking 30 tiller stuff. I mean, it, it bronzed it up, beat it back, and it never touched the vent. The vent was beautiful. So, he got back, you know, he tripled his vent grass coverage. So, he was able to continue his trial. Um, now, we haven't done very much work on The post emerge aspect, but in our replicated trials, there's been uh, multiple trial sites where we had up to 5% crabgrass seedlings present at study initiation, and in every case, we took them all out. So it does have some post emerge activity on crabgrass. It's a lot weaker on goosegrass, unfortunately, than it is on crab. That's why we have to go to the higher rate on goose. And even with the higher rate on goosegrass, you're probably still gonna have to have a pocket knife on your person. Uh, but it should make that picking a lot more manageable than, than it would be without a 2% program. More for people that are kind of losing the battle against crab and goose and just can't manage it with labor, you know.
2: So so the 2% is, you say, more of a pre-emergent effect it is. more of a pre-emergent effect, it's more a it
1: pre-emergent effect but, it, but we're clearly seeing that it's both post and pre. It has activity okay. both ways. But, yes, I would uh, bill it as a pre-emerge. Frequent application because see two percent even if you put heavy heavy doses out the prop the reason two percent has never really competed in the pre-emerge market that well is because it doesn't have the, the the residual period it doesn't have the the lasting uh, power that a prodiamine would but so will not persist long enough and so we've solved that by basically robbing the low dose frequent application concept that the illegal acclaim users we're, we're using. We applied that to 2%, which I guess no one had thought to do, you know, and it worked really, really well. So low dose frequent application of 2% is kind of main, it's giving a little bit of post-emerge knockdown, but maintaining that residual in the soil as well and, and keeping the weeds at bay without harming the bent.
2: Excellent. Uh, one, one other topic that I have observed and had questioned on in the transition zone is sedge and bent grass greens. Uh, any thoughts on on that topic?
1: Well, I can sum that market up very quickly. There are no registered herbicides that can be used for sedge okay. control on bent grass greens. Um. So, so then the question becomes, you know, for collars approaches areas where you're trying to prevent sedge uh, invasion. And, you know, the safest products would be halosulfuron or imazosulfuron. So, that's going to be like a sedge hammer uh, or, or pro-sedge type product uh, or versus Solero, uh, which is a new product that, that New Farm picked up when they kind of got in bed with valence. And um, that, you know, both of those products are going to have the safety on bent grass to um, – to keep all of your approaches and collar areas clean, uh, and if you happen to get some overspray onto the green, there's safety enough for that as well. Uh, but we really don't have, other than hand picking any legal herbicide that can be applied to bentgrass greens
2: for sedge control. I thought you might say that so (laughs) (laughs) one one other
1: thing that to consider again there's risk involved as i've already outlined but the uh the anderson's crab and goose oxidizon has some pre-emerge sedge suppression ability and it probably would be enough to to turn your uh you know to make your labor involved with picking the sedge manageable but it comes with you know, I, I'm I'm not so worried about the, the monetary cost as I am the injury cost or risk there with that product. I, a lot of, you know, a lot of guys implement products like Anderson's Crab Goose on green successfully year after year. Mm-hmm. And I know in Virginia, our collars, we, we have serious problems where our collars get just beat down and thinned out every year. And we get crab and goose and, and just you name it um and i know a lot of guys will use anderson's crab and goose to ring the collars in addition to using a normal uh, some other uh, root inhibiting pre all the way up to the edge and so they're doubling up actually on the collars just to try to keep them clean because they get so thin by season's end um but again you know anytime you get on a green collar or on a green you i mean and every superintendent knows this but you don't you don't go into a new program because, Ask you said, uh, you know, it's going to take, you have to put your toe in the water first and figure out what's working for you locally. Um, so all this stuff that I'm talking about, consider it as an idea to try. But um, but the things that I usually talk about fervently, like the 2%, I'm pretty darn confident. that I, I know that people who are losing vent anyway will also lose vent. And probably more bent if they're on a 2% program, but the programs we have used, I'm, we've done it enough that I'm pretty convinced that 2% is not going to cause you to lose bent grass. Mother Nature will and 2% will help her, but uh, it's pretty safe. Right now, 2% and Cure would be the two of the safest herbicides that I could point to for like to use actually on a green.
2: I had a gentleman in Florida ask me if if you could use Cure. To control POA in Bermuda grass?
1: Yes, you absolutely can. It'll also, it's a weight loss program. Whatever money's in your wallet, it'll be gone and you'll weigh about you know three or four ounces less. <laughs> um, it depends on what your acreage is, but absolutely on Bermuda greens, which is where this is going to be most economical, POA cure is absolutely safe. So it's, uh, in fact, it'll be safer on Bermuda greens than it is on bent. Now we have other much cheaper products to use on Bermuda Greens, but we're getting resistance to every one of them left and right. So that's so our Southern colleagues where they're gonna be using POA cure is for ALS resistant POA, DNA resistant POA, all these other issues. Uh so yes you can Definitely use cure to solve some of those problems for you on Bermuda greens. Like cure of overseeded, you name it. Even on overseeded greens, you can use it. Well, you got to be at least six weeks separated from establishment of the overseed uh, grass. So it needs to be at least six. I would prefer nine weeks old before you uh, try to take polar out with
2: cure Thank you.
0: Well, I, think, I think we're kind of getting towards the end of our time here, at least that we've we've asked you for and appreciate it, Dr. Askew. I, I think there's a few topics that we could probably go on forward for a lot longer. I think you mentioned one in alternatives to glyphosate and POA you just mentioned. Uh, but I just want to tell you thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, respect your research program. Um, I, I know coming up as a grad student through the Southern Weed Science Society uh, that I was always impressed with the amount of work and the quality of work uh, that you produced at Virginia Tech. So thanks for taking a little bit of time uh, to speak with us today. Any Any questions, Raymond or Jason, just real quick that you might have or we covered everything you guys
2: wanted to cover. I'd just like to say thank you for being responsive to Dr. Zhang because I think some of the uh, weed problems he has on his research screen could potentially impact the work we're doing with him. So we'll keep that up. We we appreciate that.
3: I was to say, I de- we definitely appreciate you all the way. And, you know, Florida, I know you're in Virginia, but I know a lot of the guys on my team follow you on Twitter, and we have used a lot of your recommendations that you have posted very successfully um, in the Florida market as well. So thank you for sharing those and uh, please continue and you know, thank you for your time today.
1: Thanks a lot and uh, you know we'll have to do this again I, you know, anytime. Well
3: appreciate that. And where can
0: you, you know, our listeners find out more information? Where can they find out information about your research program and maybe some of maybe some of your recommendations?
1: Uh, definitely email me sasku okay. at vt.edu they can follow me on Twitter which is vtturfweed and those will be the two primary Method. So if you Google me at Virginia Tech, you definitely will find my info, but it's F Ask You for the email and uh, VT Turf Weed for Twitter.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. To send the Harold's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments or to be featured on an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to TurfDudes at heralds.com. Turf Dudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-V-E-S.